So longtime listeners of the show will probably remember Jay Davis, who's been on a number of times. Well, in addition to being a friend and a consulting client, I'm excited to say now that he's also a sponsor of this show. Last year, when I was spending a lot of time at his company's office, he started a new company called Pillow Cube, which is this awesome memory foam rectangle pillow that's tall enough for me to be a side sleeper, but not have to have my head sag down like when I try to fold over my regular pillows. It's really pretty amazing, and for any side sleepers like me, it's great so we don't have to wake up with shoulder pain. On top of that, it's been really fun for me to see him have so much success because it's been selling like crazy. Anyways, if you're a side sleeper, I highly recommend going to pillowcube.com and getting one for yourself. And so if we were going to launch the brand, it was going to be around and centered on this story. I'm a, I'm a firm believer, and this was before I ever read Simon Sinek's book, It Starts With Why. But I'm a firm believer that if you understand your why, that, and you build your brand and your company around your why, then people are going to gravitate to it, and they'll understand, and they'll want to be a part of it. It's like why Patagonia has such a cult following, right? Or why Apple has a cult following, or Southwest, or any of these other companies that really, you're not just shopping based on price. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, I've got Jeremy Hallett. Jeremy, thanks for making time. Always a pleasure. Absolutely. So I'll start off with a shout out. Thanks to our mutual friend, Josh Steinle, for making this happen. And did you guys know each other over in Hong Kong? Where did you guys meet? No, so Josh and I, did, I, I've met Josh in person once, but we've just okay. connected virtually. He fell in love when, so I co-founded Ultra Running and he fell in love with our shoes while he was over there writing for a trail magazine and, and got in touch with me that way. And we've just okay. kind of stayed in virtual contact. Yeah. So, so and, and tell people about your agency you've got now. Yeah, so I left Ultra a few years ago, and since then I've kind of been playing around doing some e-commerce marketing and and working on some strategy and stuff. I I've helped kind of build a marketing marketing automation company, and so I work as a partner there. But on the side, but well, now my full time thing is I've spun off of that, and I do fully automated managed marketing for small to medium sized companies. So I help manage their automated marketing flows. So that's email, text message pushing stuff to Facebook audiences, that type of stuff. So it's me and a partner, Casey Peterson, that that are starting that up. We're also writing the book on marketing automation and, and really helping companies understand and leverage the value of more personalized communication through marketing automation. That's great. Well, so my my brother and my best friend went to university on track scholarships. So I heard about your shoe company from them and because all the cute girls were at the track meets. So I used to tag along, right? But for people who don't understand just like what a difference that shoe made in that world, can you, can you talk a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Any quite like jump in with any questions if you want to interject or, or ask anything, but, but back in 2009, and I'll kind of give you kind of the gen- my genesis story of Ultra. But in 2009, I was I was trying to get back into shape again. I was about to be 30, which at the time I thought was pretty old. Now that I'm 40, maybe it wasn't that old, but it really was still the hardest birthday that I've ever had to achieve was that 30th birthday. But I wanted to lose some weight, get back in shape. And the best way that I knew how was to, to run. I ran in high school. I ran in track. 
and cross country back in high school and just kind of let it go as I got older into college and stuff. But when I, when I wanted to get back running, I, I was dealing with some knee pain and some issues. And my aunt and uncle have owned a running store for now probably 35 years. And my cousin grew up working in the running store. So I went to him and I said, hey, I need something better. And, and he was like, well, you know what? We've been tinkering with this shoe here in the running store. It's kind of a different idea. Maybe you should give it a try. And I said, well, tell me about it. And what, they, what he was doing, well, originally he melted a shoe in a toaster oven so that he could peel off the outsole removed the entire midsole and then he took a fat flat a flat piece of foam and glued it onto the upper and then glued the rubber outsole back on so the whole concept was it was the same height we called it we ended up calling it zero drop but it was the same height off the ground from heel to forefoot the standard running shoe at least 10 years ago was twice as high in the heel as it was in the forefoot and biomechanically from what we saw and what our experience was, that causes you to catch a little early through your stride, land under a straight leg. Getting rid of that extra heel elevation allows you to land more underneath a bent knee, more under the body. Some people kind of refer to it as a midfoot strike or whatever. To us, it wasn't as important as where you strike, where the foot landed, as much as where the foot landed in relation to the knee and the hips, because the body works as a spring. And so we wanted that, that body to land and absorb that contact as it was meant to versus a straight leg landing. So he explained all of this stuff to me and kind of the science behind it. And I was kind of, yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh, right, whatever. And he's like, okay, fine, put the shoes on, let's go for a run. So there in my out of shape state, we went for like a two and a half mile run. And we ran a mile out and I was wearing these like hacked up shoes and it was amazing. <laughs> it was, it was a game changer for me because I felt fluid. I felt smooth. I, I was experiencing something different and I didn't have the knee pain that I was dealing with before. Of course, I was still out of breath. I was still out of shape. Like it didn't, didn't remedy everything for me, but I was, I was sold. And so he made halfway through, he made me switch shoes with him and he was wearing a traditional heeled shoe. And so we put that on and, and going back and he could, he was watching my form going out and coming back and, and he could see the differences for sure. And I could feel the differences. So I was sold. So we got back to his house and we started talking about the concept and the idea a little more in detail. And I said, well, what, what are your plans with this? Like, what are you thinking? He's like, oh, right now we just, people come into the running store, they buy a pair of shoes. We've got a shoe cobbler here locally. We just send them over there and he hacks up their shoes for them and makes it and zero, we zeros them out, makes them zero drop. And I said, well, that's nice and all, but how are you going to do it at scale? And I don't know where some of my thinking came from. I wasn't a full on entrepreneur at this time, like, but I'd read a lot of books. I'd researched it a lot. I was working as a financial advisor at the time. And and he said, well, we'll just do it out of the running store. We just want to help as many people out of our store as we possibly can. And I said, well, why don't we, why don't we do this at scale? Why don't we start a shoe company? And then after he stopped laughing for a few minutes, I said, no, I'm serious. Like, let's do this. And he said, dude, we have no idea how to develop shoes. And I said, oh, we'll figure it out. And so he said, fine, if you can figure out a way for us to develop shoes, then I'll come and help you. And, and fast I want to forward. pause for one second. Yeah, yeah I want to pass. Ahead. I want to pause for a second. Like, how big is that brand now? I mean, I know you guys so, have sold and this kind of stuff, but like, how, how big is it now, that brand? Yeah, so I'm not, I'm not sure the exact numbers that Ultra's doing um, year over year right now. But in 2017, Ultra sold to VF Corp for $140 million. And that year, that fiscal year closing March of 2017, they did $50 million in top line revenue. So, so I would assume that Ultra's probably somewhere. VF's publicly traded, so I'm sure we could go look it up. But I'm sure they're somewhere in the ballpark of 
a 75 to a hundred million dollar company right now. So yeah. So from a shoe company that we started in 2009 in my cousin's basement. So <laughs> that's a pretty, that's a pretty quick acceleration, my friend. Yeah, no, it's, it was, it's been a wild and exciting ride. The whole thing was amazing. It was awesome. So you have the, you have a better product, right? But there's a lot of, there's a lot of innovators. There's a lot of inventors who have a better product that never grow a brand and actually get enough people to buy it to sell for $140 million, right? So let's start talking about some of the marketing. Let's talk about like, you know, having something better is not enough. Then what? No, it's, yeah, it's not. And like early on, so we found a development group up in Portland that we ended up partnering with and, and they were super leery with the idea because it was to them, it was just another idea, right? Like they, they were a concept firm and they, they would take people's concepts and bring them to reality. But most of their deals they would do with like, it was new shoe lines that they would do for Columbia or Nike or like the big boys that kind of wanted to dabble in something different, right? They would bring that to reality. But one of the designers that did up there, he was the last maker for Nike. He did, he was the head of Nike University and teaching their last, how to make the last, which is the last is that's the mold of the shoe of the foot that the shoes are built around that are stitched around. Right. And, and so he'd always wanted to do something that was more biomechanically sound, like what we were doing and, and zero drop wasn't the only idea that we had. The other big thing that we did in innovating in the shoe was, was we made a shoe actually shaped like the human foot traditional running shoes tapered the toe box. So they cut off the, they cut in at the big toe, doesn't allow the foot to splay out, kind of impedes some of that. And so if we were going to do it, we were all in. And so we were, it was not only going to be zero drop, but shoes were actually going to be shaped like feet. Not that we were going to start making fingered toes, like the five fingers and stuff. Right. But, but we wanted to make a shoe that was, that was biomechanically sound for the entire foot. And and he totally bought into this idea. And he's like, we've, I've, we've wanted to do something like this. But the one thing that you guys bring that, that other, other ideas, what we can't do and whatever is the story. We were three sub 30 year old kids that were had, we were stupid for lack of a better term, right? Like we were ignorant. <laughs> we knew how big the shoe market was, right? And we know how big Nike is. We know how big Saucony and Asics and Brooks and all those big players are. We, we've been dealing stealing those shoes forever, right? Like my cousin, he's a D2 All-American. Our other partner, Brian, he's he's competed in ultra marathons. Like, like we know the shoe market. Both of those guys grew up run, working in run specialty, selling in retail. So for us, it was, if we're going to do this, we're going to tell a story and, and we're going to build a brand around the story and how this story affects people's lives. Not just our lives, but the lives that we've seen. Because we probably modified over 2,000 pairs of shoes out of the running store before we ever launched our first product, right? So we saw kind of the proof of concept as far as like this idea has some legs. All the feedback we're getting from people. We would send out we'd send out surveys with everybody that would take a pair of shoes. And because we were tied into the running store, right, it's my aunt and uncle, so it, we'd give away a $25 gift card to the running store if they brought back their survey. So those surveys came back. <laughs> so we got to see the feedback, right? And people were telling us stories and like, obviously this isn't scientifically proven, but people were telling us the stories of, hey, this has eliminated my shin splints or my hip pain's gone when I'm running, or I don't have that twingy lower back pain or 
my plantar fasciitis doesn't exist anymore or like all of these things kept coming in and we saw those especially more after we launched the brand and so if we were going to launch the brand it was going to be around and centered on this story i'm a, i'm a firm believer and this was before i ever read simon sinek's book it starts with why but i'm a firm believer that if you understand your why that and you build your brand and your company around your why then people are going to gravitate to it and they'll understand and they'll want to be a part of it it's like why patagonia has such a cult following right or why apple has a cult following or southwest or any of these other companies that really you're not just shopping based on price you're you're coming in and supporting that brand because of the story and the ethos of what they are and so that's what we wanted to build it on and that's what we did and it was around this story of run better we wanted to help people have a better running experience we wanted them to achieve goals that they just semi imagined whether it was getting off the couch and running their first 5k or if it was was going out and running a 100 mile race at the start of a weekend and then going and traveling to Tahoe to run a 200 mile race or if it was individuals doing 50 ironmans in 50 states over 50 days or whatever however big these were but also but most importantly we really wanted to cater to that individual that hey I just want to go set a new marathon PR without pain without the hip pain or knee pain or like, yes, I'm going to have running pain, right? Like and still my muscles are going to fatigue, but, but we wanted to help individuals achieve those things. Or I want to lose 150 pounds and go from 300 to being an avid runner at, at 170 pounds. And we've seen those stories. We've seen those experiences and we've changed those lives because of the product that we pushed out and because of the story that we told around the brand. And we knew what our why was and we stuck to that why. And we stayed true to what the cornerstone message was. And that's where it started, right? And then there's all the fringe. Yeah, okay, we ran ads. We got tied in with races. We did all the sponsorships. We told the story via email, social media. Timing was also a big part too, right? Like 2009, I could build a Facebook audience without having to pay very much money for it. So there is that too. But but I think a lot of it still hinges and, and falls back on that why. Yeah. In addition to being obviously very financially successful, it's also got to be more fun to show up to work to a brand that's living, living their story really hard. Absolutely. No, it's when, yeah, when we were growing the brand and we were living that story and we were traveling, telling the story, doing those things, it was, it was a ton of fun. Um, it was a great experience. The one, the one challenge with that is, is when you get corporate partners that are more corporate and they don't believe in the brand message as well. And, and they want to try to steer it their way. And, and that is, can be demeaning and, and kind of takes deflating, I guess is a better term, takes that fun out of it. Right. But as long as, as long as you stay to your core ethos and, and you are doing what you're passionate in and, and doing what you believe in both as individuals and as a brand, then it's a lot of fun to go to work. It's, it's, easier to leave your family every weekend in October to go to a race, right? Like, because you're helping people and you're doing something awesome and you're, you're being a part of that. Not to say that it's easy, <laughs> but it's easier, right? And it's easier to work late nights and to run and push hard and, and to do that. It's, it's kind of this lightning in a bottle effect. It's this, this group flow that we experienced among the three of us and then some of the early other individuals that we hired in and, and how great that is. And it's trying to recapture that in later ventures that once you've experienced it, it's, it's kind of tough. 
Like I just finished, I just finished Stephen Kotler's book, The Rise of Superman. And in that book, he talks a lot about action, action sports athletes and, and how, how their state of flow really takes them to these just crazy new heights, whether it's, whether it's base jumping or ski basing or Alex Honnold free soloing or any of these number of things that most of us humans just think are nuts, right? But that they get into this mindset of flow and are able to just accomplish amazing feats because they're so focused and so dialed in. But one of the things that he talks about in that book is, is that one of the hard things for a lot of these action sports athletes is when the body doesn't do what it used to be able to do and they can't recapture that moment of flow. And sometimes that's where some of this substance abuse and some of these other things play in because they're trying to replicate that. And that, and I can kind of relate to that a little bit because I understand what it was like to have that flow, that group flow, that, that moment of, Hey, this is, we're on to some, this is a blast. We're doing things. We're doing things. We're changing, we're changing the world, at least within our sphere of influence. And sometimes I just wake up in the morning and I'm just like, I want that back. I want <laughs> Let's capture that again, right? And and I think I've got it a little bit right now with some of the things that I'm doing, but but it's always like starting up a company is a, a unique experience in and of itself. Yeah. Well, tell us now where you're helping these these other folks who are earlier on in their corporate evolutions, right? Startups and smaller businesses and stuff. Tell us some of the principles that, you know, the lessons you have from, from what you did and, and the other lessons you've learned about marketing. What, what are some of the principles that you're teaching and helping people with now? Yeah. So I think some of the stuff that I've covered a little bit, right. But also like branding the why, having your story, understanding who your target customer is, understanding who those personas are. One of the great things that, that I enjoy about, about marketing automation is how much data is readily available to us about our customers, whether whether it's through targeting prospective customers through Facebook or Google ads or any of those networks, right? And being able to say specifically, I want females that are 28 years old that make between 90 and $110,000 and have two kids and own their home, right? Like, or, and that are interested in these brands, right? Like I can get super specific. I can also with some with with client data platform or customer data platforms out there, I can start to get some things like appended data and some of these other things to bring in information to my existing customers. And that way I can start to segment them in much richer targeted manners, right? So so for me as a, a running shoe guy, well, if I see that I've got customers that are interested in the mountains or in trail running specifically or rock climbing, well, I can start to tell a different story specifically to those customers that caters very much to that customer versus the road marathoner that lives in the urban city, right? Like that's that's two very different stories that I'm telling. And so if I segment them out and start to siphon out that story in a unique way and have my marketing messaging, my emails, not just be spray and pray, not just be open broadcast, but to be very specific to those different groups. Now I'm more personalized and my customers are going to be more loyal to me because they see, okay, this brand understands me more. They understand me better. They care about me. And the cost of accessing that data has come down so much over the last five years that virtually any company can take advantage of that type of data now. And so, so that's, that's a big part of it, right? 
carving out those personas or those segments to say, okay, these are the customers that I'm going to go after. And then these are the stories that I'm going to tell to each of those customer groups, because that's who I appeal to. And this is how I'm going to tell my story, right? I'm going to use these methods. And there's so many methods out there that we can use nowadays that we can track. I've seen like with the, with the marketing automation company that I'm a partner with, Cinch, like direct mail has been a big deal there. We've seen a lot of success with brands using direct mail because it's not just, it's not the broadcast postcard, right? It's not the, the mail house sending out a thousand to the zip code. It's saying, okay, I've got these customers that I know are buyers or they're, they're likely to purchase this product and I can send out 25 at a time and say, okay, and make it very to targeted. The right people. Exactly. At the right time to the right person with the right message. And then I can see, okay, of these 25 people that I sent it out to, how many of them responded to it? How many clicked the QR code? How many went to the website? How many ended up purchasing, whether it was in store or online or whatever? And and we're starting to see, and we've been seeing it over the last 10 to 15 years, right? Like this omni-channel approach, but we're really seeing with the way that we can track things is bringing the offline online and the online offline. And I love working with brands that have both brick and mortar as well as an online presence, because there's so much that can be done in cross-pollinating and working those two together that becomes really valuable for, for brands and especially, and for customers, because as customers, like, why do we keep going to Amazon? Well, they keep feeding us content that is relevant to us, right? So why did the Netflix model, right? Like I go on to Netflix and they're like, hey, recommended for you. It's not perfect every time because there's a lot of things I see that are like, wait, that's not recommended for me. Or, may, or maybe I need to check and see what my kids are watching. But... <laughs> But for the most part, right, like we're getting really good at seeing, okay, this is people's behavior. And based on that behavior, then they must have this type of interest. And we can really start to tell that story. So, so I would say leverage the tools that are out there, build on your foundational why, understand who your customer personas are, and then just hustle hard. Just go out and just hustle hard and work really hard and tell that story. But be smart about it because there is a lot of marketing waste that I see that happens. And that's, and that's where brands are spending money on things that they really, they really shouldn't be spending money on. And broadcast emails may not cost you money to send out a broadcast email, but it does cost you a relationship with your customer. And so I would reassess how you do your broadcast emails because if you lose that customer, they could have been a really high paying customer if you'd have given them the right message. But because you just sprayed and prayed, they may unsubscribe and you may have lost them. And that that's a type of marketing waste. If you're marketing to people on Facebook that are already regular buyers, that's unnecessary. If you're not marketing to people that are high value customers that but have lagged in their return rate, that's marketing waste. You need to go and target those people. And you need to understand that data. And so you're looking at the analytics and understanding how those things come about and where those are. Those play a big part in, in today's economy and in building any business, whether it's offline or online. And if you're an offline business and you're not using online tools, start, figure out how to, because your customers are online. And if you, whether you like it or not, if you don't cater to them online for your offline business, they're going to start buying from somebody else's on, online business and you're going to end up losing them. Yeah. You know, one of the fun things for me about this show is that a lot of times I can say, Hey, can we, can we do like a little bit of consulting session? Can I give you my business as an example and get your advice? And I get all this like <laughs> great advice from these experts, yeah. you know, Yesterday, I, I had the chief marketing officer of Harley Davidson on. So I was asking her this kind of stuff. Yeah. So, so I'd love to get your advice. 
one of the things we've been thinking about is, so our our investment arm, uh, we're selling real estate investments, right? So we've got, yep. we've got some kinds that we can't advertise publicly. And then with some of like the Jobs Act regulations, we've got some that we can, okay? And uh, I've really been looking at this like, well, I'd love to tell you like the thought of where we're thinking about going with it and get your feedback. Is that okay? Yeah. Okay. So we've been thinking like, what if we were selling like boring, reliable income for exciting people? Like, what if it was like, you know, come buy some freedom, like come, come finance your adventures. Because if you're like the action sports guy or you're entrepreneur, you're like, you're going out to have an adventure in life. This can be some of the, like, keep the lights on money, mailbox money. Like here's your boring, reliable stuff so that you can like fully commit to your exciting, crazy life. And I just think about like my entrepreneur friends who are making really good money, but like anxious that it could go away at any moment or like all my action sports buddies, right. Who would rather take more time off work to go on more adventures and take their kids on more adventures and stuff. But, you know, but financially, like they don't want to jeopardize anything or risk anything. Right. And so it's kind of a tension of like, you know, most people wouldn't normally think of like Red Bull advertising to sell an investment, right? But for us, we're like, man, we are authentically the guys with the broken bones and the scars from all our action sports and and stuff like that. So we could like, we could live the brand. We could invite customers to actually come on adventures with us, invite them to document their adventures and us publish it. You know, we're like through this media company we own, right? Yeah. Anyways, I'm kind of throwing up on you, but any like initial reaction to this whole idea? So I love, I love the idea of the experience, creating the experience, right? Like providing this experience for your customers. Several years ago, I was, I was brainstorming with one of my sales reps on ideas of how, how can, how can I get more clients, right? Like that's his goal, right? And, and so we were brainstorming on this and just like, what, well, there's always the idea of, okay, you can, you can send them the box and, and that's different than the traditional like mailer, right? Or the email and it stands out. So it's likely to get opened. And what is that? What does that entail? Right. But then I think, but then we kind of got to this idea. Well, why don't I send them a box with half of a pair of shoes and they're like a, a half of a pair of trail shoes, right? If I can find out their shoe size even better, right? So it's in their shoe size. And with a little note that says, hey, if you want the other half a pair of shoes, then you'll come on this trail running excursion in Salt Lake City with me next weekend where we can, where I can tell you all about my business, right? And so it's, but it was, but it was all centered around like, okay, hey, we're going to put you up in this Airbnb or this hotel or whatever it might be, right? And we're going to go on this like epic trail running adventure in the cottonwoods or in right like in the wasatch mountains and you're going to come and experience my playground and but you if you want right like but you're gonna have to sit through me spending two hours on a run with you or five hours on a run with you or whatever right telling you about my business and and we may not do business but hey we're gonna have an epic experience regardless right and so, so that's kind of a, a fun lead, lead generation idea for like, obviously like these clients have to be individuals that are high rollers. Right. And we kind of, we kind of brainstormed, okay, like, do we, do we cater to their secretaries and, and do something there? Cause they're the ones that are planning their, their retreats and some of that stuff. Right. And so, so we kind of toyed with this whole experiential idea. And I, so I love, I love the idea of the experiential. Right. And so, 
So being able to cater to the client that way, but also show them the tools and the resources to, hey, you can continue to have these types of experiences because we're going to help you generate passive income that is going to provide more flexibility for you to have these type of experiences. So and kind of I, I think is, that story resonates. Okay. Okay. Well, and kind of the thought is a little bit like, we don't necessarily have to define, like they don't necessarily have to have our adventure. You know, maybe their adventure is going to, going to the Philippines to volunteer for a charity in the dump, you know what I mean? And help, help the people there. Right. Like it doesn't necessarily have to be our adventure, but you know, like, I guess my question for you as like, you know, a guy who started, you know, started a shoe company with his cousin laughing at him and that eight years later sells for $140 million. Right. When you think about that type of growth and, you know, like there's ideas that sound good and then there's actually pulling them off. Right. And I I do feel like there's this tension of like, yeah, we want to do like, we want to show like the, the crazy, the exciting, the risky, but then also be like, but we've got guys that look like investment makers who are in the office watching the money like a hawk so that you can come to do this. Any, any thoughts about telling that story of like the two halves of, of the business? There's us there's us founders who are, you know, maybe a little nutty, but then we've got like the accounting types who are being very cautious with your money, you, but we're in the well, same company. Yeah, no. Well, you got to find out what the accounting types love to do and get them on their type of adventure, right? Like, and they, you got to tell that internal story. I think Davis Smith has done a fantastic job with this, with Code Epoxy, right? So so early on when they started Code Epoxy, one of the things that, that he put together was these these like the adventure yeah, no it was well there was the questivals but then there were these these adventure events so like they kayaked from Miami to Cuba I think it was okay he talked um, about this on the show when he came on the podcast okay okay so so like but like that was part of their brand ethos right and and another thing is so one thing that they give to all of their employees is is they give them this time every year to go do something epic whether it's it's go and contribute to a charity. And I think they also give them like five grand or something towards this activity. I want to say there's some type, there's some amount that they give to their employees to facilitate this activity, right? So if your idea is to go to Philippines and do some service based, right? Or if it's that, hey, I want to go, I want to go backpack through the Himalayas and just have an epic experience, right? Like they, they are doing, they're helping to facilitate that, right? And I think that really resonates with who they are as their brand, right? And then there's, but then there is the side of it of, okay, well, but what are they really, what are they doing for the manufacturers, right? Because those aren't direct employees, but, but they're still, still tied into the brand because they're making the product. But one of the things that I love that Davis talks about and that they've done is they give them complete leeway. They say, okay, here's the pattern, but you can use whatever colors you want, right? So that's why so much of their stuff looks very different from it from each other. And that's why so many so much of it is just kind of a, a swath of different colors, is because they've given that leeway to the seamstress, right? That's that's over in Vietnam or wherever, right? And that individual now, instead of just being a factory, like, okay, I'm just black and white, get it through, right? Now they get to let their creativity come out and they get to have their own experience with the brand. And that to me really is about doing good, right? Like that's, that's totally along the lines of their why and their ethos and who they are and what they're trying to accomplish. And so, so even if it's the accountant or the financial guy that's in the office, right? What is, what is that thing that allows him to break outside of that green hat wearing 
black and white world, right? Like, and yeah, have it's that a good, experience. It's a good point because like the guy that we hired to be our CEO, chief investment officer, he is, he's very conservative. He's very cautious. It's easy to trust him because he's like very calm and stuff. Right. But yeah, but like, I know that he, he does like really awesome mountain bike trails with his 14 year old, you know? And, and like, may, maybe it doesn't need to be a juxtaposition of like, we've got these types and these types. Maybe it's just a, you know, everybody has like, what's your adventure? Like that's right. the tagline. What's your adventure? Kind absolutely. of Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's facilitating and, and helping them facilitate those adventures, right? Like, like if he loves to take his 14 year old son, right? Like maybe it's a, maybe it's a father and son, like we're going to get a group of us and we're going to go down to Moab, right? And we're going to go ride, go ride spider and some of these trails down there, right? Or it's, or we're going to go to St. George or we're going to go to Crested Butte or, right? Like we're going to go take this time and we're going to go have an awesome mountain biking adventure because that's what you love to do. And we're going to come as a team and we're going to support that. So my, my next marketing question is, I really feel like there's the, there's the obvious market of like my, I'm just calling my, my wealthy entrepreneur buddies, right. Who've got some money and they would like to, you know, they'd like to like take some risk off the table, you know, yeah. and, and they would just like to have, you know, some like money they don't have to worry about. Like they never have to go back to being broke again concern. Right. Right. But the other thing with like with these Jobs Act regulations where we can advertise private investments to the general public, like I kind of have this thought about this other marketplace of like, what about the people who maybe they've never bought any investment before? And like usually buying into like these really high quality real estate buildings, you know, it's like 50 grand, 100 grand minimums. Some of them are million dollar minimums, right? Right. And we're saying like, hey, we'll let you in with 10 bucks. Or you want to just put 50 bucks to try something out? Like we'll like we want to we want to be your first we want to be your first one. And like paint this picture of like, Hey, after enough years of this, that's the kind of income that can make some of that work optional for you. Or like, it's almost painting the picture of like the eventual adventure that this will facilitate is like, start living your adventures now. But if you keep doing this for years, those adventures could get better because this could finance them kind of thing. I don't know. Any thoughts on that? No, I, I think there's, I think there's a story there to be told for sure. But I think like that in and of itself is a really interesting thing, right? Like you, you look at how much Robin hood, for example, has blown up, right? Like the app. And I was, <laughs> I was reading an interesting article. I think it was in wired the other day where this guy was given a hundred dollars by the, by his editor to kind of test it out and see what it was like. Right. Well, after, so he had to run it. He had to play with the app for 30 days well, when you open the app, you're given a, a surprise stock, right? So he got serious, I think, and it was like six bucks. And well, at the end of the month, he was he ended and closed out at like $95. So with his $100 investment and his $6 free stock, right? Like he was down like whatever that is, right? Like 12% or whatever. But it just shows that people are interested in finding new ways to get into the market, right? Or get into investments, and so making real estate investing feasible for the average individual, I think, alone has its own merits, but also being able to couple that with some type of experiential opportunity, whatever, I, I don't know exactly what that is, right? Like I, I like the idea of like, hey, live your adventure now, but here's the adventure you can have in the future type of deal. But is there is there another way or another opportunity to really make that really enticing? And and maybe it's just maybe it's just the brand ethos as it is, right? Like 
like in like hey we we live adventure and we want to empower you too and and so we're making real estate investing affordable for the everyday joe right and and being able to open that up and allow that to take place and maybe that's enough for a lot of people just to see okay like i like this brand i like what they're about right and if you have and if you push your why right it's empowering people to live their adventure or something along those lines right I think people just buy into stuff like that anyways. Yeah, it's almost like, as you're saying that, I'm thinking like, it's almost like we're not just trying to help you make money to make money. Like we want to help make you money so you can actually like live a different life. You know, like it's not, it's not the money for the money's sake, you know, like try to emphasize that of like, we're not trying to like, you know, something about like, it's more than just the money. What's, you know, like what's the next level of life? Yeah. And I, I think that's, I think that's solid. And I like the philosophy of it too, because I'm actually like, I, I don't love the stock market personally. I think like, I think it's, I think it's been ruined over the years, right? It's become politicized. Sure. And well, it's we could short, get into a short-term thinking and lots of yeah. speculation. It's, you know, it can, it can be like gambling if you don't invest the Warren Buffett way, right? Right. Ba- basically the way Seth Godin puts it is, is the stock market is you're renting companies. You're not buying companies. And how do you treat your car when you rent it versus the car that you buy, right? They're two totally different things. So I do, so I have issues with that, right? And I have issues with Robinhood because it is just, I'm fully just renting, right? Like I'm just renting a company for maybe a day or five or whatever, right? And I don't really care about the long-term prosperity of that company. I just care about how my stock does, right? But but in real estate investing, I think there's a little bit more of a tangible asset and you care about what that asset's doing. And especially if you're like, and and the more you're in, the more you care, right? Like, of course, I want to see my fifty dollar investment turn into a hundred dollars and two hundred dollars and what, right? Like, but but if I've got five thousand dollars in, I kind of care. Okay, what's that cash doing like, right? Like, and what's it going to look like? Not just the cash, but the asset that I'm owning. And I think there's a little more tangibility to it. So I so I like the philosophy of it a little bit better than a lot better than just buy and sell and trade in the stock market, right? Yeah. But also, I I do think that you're onto something there as far as like, hey, we're empowering you to have the means to live your adventure, whatever or whenever that adventure is, right? Like, like my wife and I, we hope to one day be able to kick all of our kids out of the house and retrofit a nice Sprinter van and make it look awesome inside and go travel the country and live out of it for a while. However long that while ends up being, I don't know, but like, that's, that's the way we want to live and that's what we want to do. And but we also want to do a lot of stuff that gives back and, and benefits others and, and is philanthropic in nature, whether that's going and serving or having the money to be able to, to create some philanthropy or something. And, yeah. But, well, you know, it's, it's fun for me to get advice for me on here. But thinking of what we've just talked about, what about any startup or any, you know, small innovative business that's trying to grow? How could you take this same principle that we've just been discussing? How could anybody apply this in whatever they're growing? Well, I think, yeah, it goes back to the roots and know your why. Just kind of like we went through this conversation process here, right? Like defining what that why is and then, okay, now how do, how do I both live that, my own self? my brand, the employees that I hire, right? How do I build a culture around that? I love Daniel Pink's book, Drive. That's a fantastic book that kind of goes into building culture that motivates and inspires without having to really do a lot, right? Like once once you, yeah, you don't have to spend a lot, right? Like 
once you've established that culture and that idea identity, then you're going to attract the right type of people. And then they're going to help perpetuate that. Right. Again, back to code epoxy. I think Davis has done a great job with that. Right. And Yvonne Chenard has done a phenomenal job with it. He's his book too, is a great read. Let, let my people go surfing and, and really looking at, okay, who are we and what kind of culture do we want within our company? And then you're going to attract the right people. Don't just base your hiring off of a resume, base it off of the person. And then, and then just hustle, hustle hard, but, but be intelligent, sit down, plan, discuss, Find that group flow. Get If you don't have a partner and you're trying to do it alone, go find a partner. Find somebody that you can mesh with. Find somebody that's going to challenge you. One of my partners with Cinch, one of the things that he loves about me is I'll push back. <laughs> I'm not afraid to push back or challenge his ideas. He doesn't always agree with me and we don't always implement what I want, right? But we're not afraid to challenge each other. And and I think there's a lot of a lot to be said about that, right? Like, Yes, there's, it's nice to be synergistic and flowing and moving in the same direction all the time, but, but sometimes you need somebody to say, hey, hold up, let's try it this way. Or I think we should do it this way and challenge that idea, challenge that opinion. And don't be afraid to be challenged. Don't let your pride get in the way of being challenged because you will lose some good hires. You will lose some good people if you don't let them challenge you and, and your ideas and you decide to cut them and let them go. That can be a detriment to you and your business. But that's a lot. There's a lot more, obviously, but read a lot. I like to read a lot. I think I learned the most by reading and then trying to implement what I do read. But yeah, leverage, like if you can't afford to hire it, outsource it, find good people that you can outsource it to. There's a lot of good resources to outsource to. So just know what's out there, know what's available, whether it's using Fiverr to help you create a logo or 99designs or something like that. Like our logo for Ultra, our initial logo was designed on 99designs. And then when we finally could hire a graphic designer, they just altered it a little bit, cleaned it up. We still, like that's still the logo that Ultra uses today. It cost us, like, I think 400 bucks or whatever. Like it was a great deal. Cause if you go out and you hire a firm to make you a logo and a whole brand guide, they're, they're going to charge you 10 grand. So <laughs> Or 50, um, right? Or 50, yeah, depending on how, what firm and how intense. But so don't be afraid to use the resources. And, and if you like, if you get down the road, like I've seen companies like a company called Gobe, which, which makes filters for cameras, they just changed their name and their brand just this last month. And you, it's okay. You can get down the road and you can do that if you feel like it doesn't fit who you are or what you've become or whatever. So things things can change, things can alter, and that's not a bad thing. So yeah. don't be afraid to change. So this has been really fun for me. Maybe maybe as we kind of wind down here, what's a, what's a question I didn't ask? What's What's something else we should have covered? I, I like the questions of who I am personally, because my job, my career, what I've done, those are those are nice and all, but I don't think that they really define me per se. And I think that's the same for all of us, right? Like like we talk about, right? Like we have these adventures and these things that we like to do on the side. I, I have an awesome family. My wife's been a support through everything that I try to do. I And she's, she's an ICU nurse right now, so you can only understand how, how crazy that is for her <laughs> right now. But she's always right by my side and and I couldn't do anything without her. I've got four awesome kids. We love to adventure together. As a family, we've been to 48 of the 50 United States so far with just Alaska and Hawaii to go. We've done all of those in a van, whether it be a minivan or our current Springer van. We love to adventure as a family. We love to travel. We love to get out and experience the world because there's more than just what's in our immediate sphere. And we can learn a lot by getting out and 
and learning about other people, learning about other places, meeting new people and interacting with them. That's been extremely valuable for us and our family. I went, I didn't graduate college as a normal 20 something. I went back to school after I left Altria. And instead of studying business or marketing, I decided I was going to do something where I might learn something. So I studied philosophy. So I, yeah, I, I think we need more philosophers in this world because we need people that think and think critically. So and I had, I had loved it. I loved going back to college in my thir- late 30s. I, I'm grateful that I I just wrote in my journal last night about some of the things that I've accomplished over these over this last year and the year before. And 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 one of the prompts was, are there any do I have any regrets? And I can certainly think to regrets over the last years. But as I think about each of those regrets, I I don't think any of them are regrets because of what I've learned from them. Right. We sold Ultra early on. And so we sold all of our equity early on. That that to me is a, is a little sore spot. So that $140 million wasn't a big payday for, our, for us, for us as founders, because we didn't have any equity in the brand at that time. But do I regret it? I don't, I, it's hard for me to say that I regret it. On first inkling, I would probably say yes. But as I start to think about it, no, because I've learned a lot through that process. And I don't know if I could really trade it because of everything that I've learned. And I am who I am right now because of that experience. And I definitely don't regret not graduating college in my early 20s because I got to go back. And I wouldn't have gone back if I had graduated back in my early 20s. I got to go back and study philosophy and actually see somebody that thinks critically instead of just trying to pass a class, right? Yeah. So it's interesting. Your interest in philosophy. I I'm an art school dropout originally. Okay. And okay. Uh, and well, I'm still an art school dropout. <laughs> I don't have a degree. <laughs> so, but my philosophy class was one of my very favorites. And when I decided to take a break from finance for a couple of years, that's what brought me down to the states from Canada. Uh, I went and worked for this boutique management consulting firm called the Arbinger Institute here in Utah. And okay. uh, it's a guy. He was Harvard philosophy. Sorry, a Yale philosophy PhD, taught at Oxford, taught here in the States, named Terry Warner. And a lot of his stuff is, I don't know if you know this Gnostic guy from 100 years ago in Austria, Martin Buber. Did you ever study in his stuff? Uh-uh. No, I'm not. I'll have to look him up. There's some Kant. There's some like more modern kind of like Victor Frankl, C.S. Lewis stuff in it. But it's very yeah. much this Martin Buber, like the human problems that we have with each other have much less to do with what we said or did and have much more to do with how we were thinking about people when we said or did it. And that we've all got a pretty good BS meter and we can, you know, you can tell if I think you're a piece of dirt when I'm giving you this yeah. compliment and that you're not relax, you're not reacting to my compliment. You're reacting to the fact that you think I think you're a piece of dirt. Right. Anyways, I feel like it's almost like magic, this stuff. It's, it's incredible to like, you know, these guys who have spent so long and have found stuff that is just extremely effective over and over. You know, the, the, the interview I got off just like a minute before I got on this one was with this commander from, Navy, from the Navy SEALs that was a mentor of mine back when they were a client of mine. And he, he really pushed me more into some of the Stoics. I started studying James Stockdale a little bit and him studying the Stoics at Stanford really helped him when he was a prisoner of war in Vietnam. And now the Stoics are cool, but back then, like nobody cared. Right. And I mean, that stuff has been extremely helpful to me in situation after situation of like, I get overwhelmed or I think poor me or anything like this. And I just find it like, like Ryan Holiday's book, The Obstacle is the Way. I've got it on repeat on my Audible. <laughs> I'm like, I just listen to a little bit of it almost every day. Like every time I get overwhelmed or annoyed, I, you know, it's one of my three books that I flip open and I just, I just listen to the opening quotes on those chapters now. 
and I'm like, yeah, I get my I head saw- on straight. And anyway, I need I need to grab his books. I follow him on Twitter, and I love his content. But I, unfortunately, I haven't read any of his books yet. But I like all of them. But Obstacle is like my hero book. Yeah, I'll have to I'll have to grab that one. So I've I've been. I've been diving a lot lately into like Peter Diamandis and Stephen Kotler and some of their stuff, but, but yeah, I need to, I need to go read Ryan's stuff. So. Very cool. Well, this is Riot. Thanks for making time for this. Yeah. I appreciate it. Jess, this was a pleasure. Great to connect. Yeah. I enjoyed this, this opportunity. I wish you the best of luck as you pursue kind of your real estate investment project. I love it. Okay. Everybody. Thanks for listening.